news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wraps up her four-day visit to China. What are the major takeaways from her talks with China's economic policymakers? Russia condemns Washington's decision to send cluster munitions to Ukraine. What are cluster munitions and why are they so controversial? Bangladesh says it is not subservient to any country. We delve into the country's approach to foreign policy and its relations with major powers. First, on today's show, China's Ministry of Finance says the meetings and talks between U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and senior Chinese officials were frank, pragmatic, in-depth, and constructive. The ministry says China hopes the U.S. side will take concrete actions to respond to China's major economic concerns, including lifting tariffs and relaxing export controls. The U.S. Treasury Secretary has just wrapped up her four-day visit to Beijing. She met with Chinese Premier Li Qiang and Vice Premier He Lifeng and held talks with a number of Chinese officials during the trip. Yellen described the talks as direct, substantive, and productive. She admitted that the U.S. and China still had significant disagreements, but noted that the Biden administration does not see bilateral relations through the frame of great power conflicts. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, and Harvey Zoden, former Vice President of ABC TV Network and Senior Fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. Um, so, Harvey, to start with you, what are the major takeaways from Yellen's visit to China? Um, okay, well, I would say that uh, expectations were not merely low, but in fact, uh, there weren't any expectations uh, at all. So the fact that the meetings were held at a high level between uh, Janet Yellen and Chinese officials is really the sole immediate deliverable. Um, as was the fact that the meetings were lengthy, civil, tended to clarify where each side stood, and that for the future, instead of the lack of communication between the two sides that's existed for months and months now, future staff-to-staff conversations are going to take place. And that's a very good sign because the dialogue is going to be continued at a level where policy recommendations are going to be studied, are going to be refined, are going to be made. And uh, I think that it's a long way from the economic uh, dialogues that U.S. and China had for much of the Bush II and Obama administrations that were discontinued by Trump. But I think at least it's a good beginning. And I think that the tone of the meetings were uh, were excellent. So uh, I think that we're starting to slowly build some bilateral respect for each other. Uh, but the jury is still out if we're going to be able to continue that and build it into meaningful change. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Zhou, although there has been several rounds of high-level talks lately between the U.S. and China, these were the first such economic talks during the Biden administration. So what do you make of the significance of these discussions? And has any progress been made during their talks? Actually, from the talk from Yellen, I, I, I noticed that the, she has mentioned again that the decoupling is not the strategy of Biden administration. I think this explanation is important because that the world is facing so many uncertainty and stress. So he is trying to, she is trying to deliver this message that the United States will try to do something to, to not to overcompete with China. I think that is one thing that we have to notice. While the second is that I think that both sides are trying to explain the reasons for the you know for the past behaviors, especially from the United States on the tariffs, on the sanctions. And I I, I believe that China is trying to deliver the message to reduce these sanctions or kind of uh, uh, measures by United States government is not only good for China but also very important for the U.S. companies, the U.S. market, and also other economies in the world. So they are trying to, trying to make it clear that there should be some, something to improve the status of cooperation instead of just trying to 
fight against each other, according to the data for the first several months of uh, China. We know that the economy is very, very strong and it will provide more opportunities for uh, United States companies and other companies. Yeah, and, and, and Dr. Zhou, as you said, Yellen has been trying to address China's concerns about decoupling, and, and she says uh, the U.S. knows the decoupling of the world's two largest economies would be disastrous for both countries and destabilizing for the world. But she also said there's an important distinction between decoupling on the one hand and on the other hand, diversifying critical supply chains or taking targeted national security actions. I mean, how, how do you understand this? And, and real, is there really a, a significant distinction between decoupling and, and, and say, uh, diversifying supply chains? I mean, that they are trying to connect these two concepts together. Well, it has uh, improved or increased the definition of national security and make people feeling that they are not safe by not only, you know, just depend on the or strengthening the cooperation between our two countries. Actually, for the national security, I, I think that in different levels, it has different meanings. If one country is just imagine the other countries will destroy, will stop certain kind of uh, uh, supply chains, it will feel unsafe. But if they are doing that, if they think that the other side will do that, maybe it will have bad effect also to the actions of another side. Because that we know that the world is more, we have so many common interests. And if we are trying to imagine everything just based on some assumption, it will not so good for, you know, for us to make the right decision. So in this regard, when U.S. is trying to do something to connect the supply chains and not, not only for themselves, but also to its allies, it is, uh, I, I think it's a little bit dangerous. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so uh, Harvey, what do you make of those statements regarding um, decoupling and and diversifying supply chains? Uh, I think it's a, a matter of semantics, really, and the um, the proof is in what actions are actually going to be taken. So maybe Yellen does think that there's an important distinction between decoupling, de-risking, but of course the devil's in the details. Like I said. So um, if the U.S. uh, seeks to have a just-in-case inventories, if Chinese supplies aren't meeting demand, that's one thing. But if the U.S. bans certain chip imports to China, that's a whole different kettle of fish. So we really need to go beyond the generalizations to honestly know, uh, in point of fact, uh, the global economy in general and the top two economies globally, uh, uh, what they're going to do. But I believe that our two economies are uh, so linked together um, that uh, we won't see a massive decoupling. It's just not going to happen. But it's all going to boil down to uh, how much and how, how far. We really need to work on this. And I think there's a, a huge difference between the rhetoric and uh, the statistics, the current economic statistics. So we're very much linked together and the delinkage cannot go very far, in my opinion. Okay, but Harvey, uh, according to China's Ministry of Finance, uh, during uh, the series of talks with Yellen's team, China reiterated its concerns in bilateral economic relations and asked the U.S. side to lift tariffs, treat Chinese investment fairly, relax export controls, and cancel prohibitions on Xinjiang-related products. How do you think those are being received by the U.S. side? Um. Uh, I think those things are DOA. They're dead on arrival, um, at least for the moment. There's not one iota of evidence that the U.S. is prepared to move beyond the talking stage. I think that to break this logjam, this impasse, the U.S. has to take the first step. And I think that these could be accomplished in a variety of ways. For example, the U.S. has collected 74 billion dollars in tariffs on Chinese imports uh, since Trump imposed them, falsely saying they'd only hurt the Chinese side, when in fact it also was a gut punch to American consumers who were the ones who had to foot the bill in higher prices. I think even a partial reduction in the tariffs by the U.S. uh, and, and or that the U.S. would relax some of the chip bans would send a very powerful signal to China that both sides could now engage in further discussions. Of course, 
I think the U.S. would also expect reciprocity from China. For example, some clarity and assurances on how the new Chinese security laws would or wouldn't affect American businesses doing business in China and hopefully help them identify a safe harbor in which those American businesses can feel comfortable. So again, the devil's in the details and um, it's a case of not necessarily uh, believing uh, the talk, but walking the walk. So we have to wait and see what comes next. Yes. Um, and Dr. Zhou, as we know, in recent months, the U.S. has imposed sanctions on Chinese companies and it pushed allies in Japan and the Netherlands to restrict sales of advanced semiconductors to China. Uh, but Yellen stressed that the Biden administration's export restrictions would be highly targeted and clearly directed narrowly at a few sectors where the U.S. has specific national security concerns. How do you look at this? Yes, for the semiconductor, I think that in the past we know that semiconductor globally is are a kind of a result of competition and globalization. With the different kind of cooperation by the different countries, they developed to such a stage. Well, United States has played an important role in the whole supply chain and development of technology. Well, it is also China. We also provide a very important incentive for the semiconductors to do innovation to improve its efficiency and reduce the cost of applying that. So in this regard, I think that is a result of the cooperation. So if they are still trying to do that, the semiconductor is no longer just maybe like in before, just narrowed. So it has so widespread amount different sectors and different areas in the society and economy. So I don't think it's just our narrow down our certain area to uh, our economy, well, it's, it's really affect a lot of things. Well, in this regard, I don't think that even the sanctions themselves will will slow down the development of China. Maybe we are trying to do something else. So it's uh, definitely not good for, you know, for the world to reduce the cost. Like we, what we have observed as a telecommunication, it has different standards when it's merged into one, it's a 5G generation, and, and then it have to Separate. It's uh, definitely not good and a waste of, uh, uh, I mean, the, the development strength. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Harvey, h- how do you perceive China's restrictions on export of uh, the two key metals used for computer chips? And, and how do you see this technological competition between the two countries unfolding? Okay, well, uh, the, you're referring to gallium mm-hmm. and germanium. They're yes. two rare metals. And I I see this as a shot across the bow uh, by China to the U.S. and its allies that China's not going to any longer refrain from restricting rare earths and metals for export. I've been quite surprised, actually, uh, since President Trump was uh, in office, that China's been rather tolerant in not overreacting to the extreme uh, pressures and measures put in place by the U.S. side. And so I think to me that this is a message that says that um, you better be careful because we're capable of uh, responding to um, what restrictions you put on us. So the, the new controls say to me from China's side, no more Mr. Nice Guy. And if the U.S. wants to restrict China, then U.S. and allies should be prepared to shoulder the consequences. It takes two to tango. So gallium and germanium are increasingly used in making certain computer chips as they can handle higher voltages than silicon. That's why they're important. But um, both have uh, very critical military uses because of certain radars and defense systems do rely on them. So I think that the key concept here is reciprocity. Um, There's not going to be any big problem where both sides treat each other equally. And I think that in the last answer, that's exactly what the professor was getting at, that we have to have a a level playing field. Yes, yes. And and Dr. Zhou, um, in comparison to U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to China last month, what are the key differences in approaches and messages conveyed by Janet Yellen during her visit? And how do these visits reflect the broader strategy of the Biden administration towards China? Yeah, in my understanding that uh, Blinken is uh, 
are more uh, applicants, but uh, Yellen is a kind of a practical or professional officer. So when she came here, she would like to talk more about the real nature of the economy and how about we can do something to change some of the scenarios between our two countries. Well, I have to say that in, in her position now, she is still uh, trying to do more to, to have the U.S. advantages. Uh, it's natural. But when we compare with these two, maybe uh, we should try to look at more practical ways of dealing with the situation and trying to reduce the frictions and some of the barriers. So as she came here, I, I think that... Uh, she also are uh, you know uh, asked a lot of uh, questions and also something not only to the political or diplomatic levels but more uh, more uh, real things about the economy the benefits the companies so when she came here she has um, paid more attention not only from the national level but also to the private sectors to talk with the the companies and these companies are also giving her some of the signals or, or and their understanding about the, the attitudes to the sanctions and the different kind of actions by the Treasury of the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, Harvey, uh, Yellen said uh, Biden did not see the relationship between the U.S. and China through the frame of great power conflict. And she said the world is big enough for both countries to thrive. But that seems to contradict the Biden administration's national security strategy, which labels China as America's most consequential geopolitical challenge and stresses rebuilding alliances to compete with China. So how do you interpret this apparent discrepancy? Well, I think if you uh, agree with what uh, Janet Yellen said, you also probably believe in the tooth fairy, because I think that this is all about the U.S. fear of losing its number one position in the world, and that it's basically had that position since the end of World War II and is uh, really loath to give it up. Um, The U.S. is driven by American exceptionalism with a large racist dollop of yellow peril. So at the end of the day, I believe that the U.S. wants to stay on top no matter at what cost. Um, It's a huge contrast to China's vision of a community of shared future for mankind. And so we're, we're playing out this kind of battle, philosophical battle in real time. So I think that's the true situation. Okay, so so Dr. Zhou, do you see uh, a discrepancy between um, Janet Yellen's um, statements and the strategy of the Biden administration? Yeah, I don't think that they are aligned with each other. I mean, from the details, but uh, actually, for both sides, for both you know officials, they are really want to compete with China. I, I believe that is uh, the the nature or some of the attitudes in the United States, for especially from Washington. Actually, for Biden administration, they are trying to uh, first trying to manage its own business, like for the debt issues, for the debt ceilings, and also something to do with the treasure of the United States. But then it's uh, trying to do something to to affect others, especially for the allies' efforts. And I don't think that many allies, so-called allied countries like Japan, like uh, other countries want to do this kind of new measurement because it will harm their their benefits of these companies. Well, for United States, they have diversified different kind of benefits, so they can just shift from one aspect to other. But for their allies, they are not doing that. So when they are trying to talk more, I think that both uh, for the Biden and for for Yellen, they are trying to deal with something in their own positions, and it's definitely some. I mean, there may uh, there definitely have some differences in between them. Okay. Um. So, Harvey, um, as we know, the two sides have agreed to strengthen coordination on issues such as financial stability, climate change, and debt problems. How do you see uh, the co- cooperation in these areas impacting the overall bilateral ties and potentially pave the way for progress in other contentious areas? Yeah, I think that they're a basic building block of trying to rebuild the very good relationship that we had before. Um, It's a very good beginning, but we have so many other existential problems like global public health, generative AI, arms control that we need to urgently address. 
the areas that uh, were mentioned are good places to start, uh, but we need to also later address the existential threats facing the two largest economies in the world, as well as others. But because these uh, agreements or the areas of agreement that are going to be discussed by, by staff uh, in, on an ongoing basis in the near future, it's a really good place to start because those are issues, especially the financial stability and debt problems uh, that can be immediately addressed. Uh, climate change is more complicated. John Kerry is hopefully going to be coming to China very soon to address this issue. And uh, you have to remember that uh, it was John Kerry when he was Secretary of State um, who worked together with China to achieve the Paris Climate Agreements uh, and made it possible. So I believe in climate change, although it's a much uh, bigger problem, complicated problem, that um, we're going to be able to address that too. And I'm very happy that uh, he's coming to China, that the Secretary of Commerce from the U.S. is coming as well. So I think there are hopeful signs, but they're just baby steps in a very, very long walk. Mm. Okay, so uh, Dr. Zhou, actually over the past several decades, economic ties have been considered the bedrock of U.S.-China relations, with the belief that mutual benefits of trade contribute to stability and prevent conflicts. Considering the current geopolitical climate, can we still rely on economic ties to sustain the foundation of China-U.S. ties? Yeah, in my understanding, I believe that market is more powerful to decide the directions of cooperation or competition. Well, I don't think that competition is a bad thing because with the competition, the efficiency of the market will be improved. So if United States is only trying to give us a very strong and they will abide by the rules, I don't think that it's a bad thing for both countries to compete in certain areas. But if they want to just limit the market competition by the interference of the government of its power, it's maybe not so good. As many politicians have mentioned that the Pacific is big enough mm -hmm. to hold the, you know, the market, also the companies of both sides to develop. I, and I do believe that with the bigger and more integrated markets, both countries can benefit a lot from this cooperation. So I do believe that economic cooperation will be the very important thing between our two countries. Um, so Harvey, would you agree? Do you think economic ties can continue to serve as the bedrock of China-U.S. relations? I think they're critical, and I think that they can. It doesn't mean that they uh, invariably will. But uh, we do a heck of a lot of trading between the two countries, and hopefully we're going to do more. We're the two largest economies in the world. And if you talk about win-win, you couple it with uh, mutual self-interest, and you have this trade situation. So I do believe um, that it's going to be a major factor if we're going to go forward on a civil basis and try to uh, benefit to, together to our mutual benefit and actually to global benefit as well. Mm -hmm. And then Harvey, by the way, uh, considering the upcoming presidential election in the U.S. in 2024, how might the potential change in administration impact the trajectory of U.S.-China relations? Very briefly. It's a re oh, it's such an interesting question, but it's also quite depressing to contemplate because uh, former President Trump, despite his uh, growing number of indictments, actually has a good chance based on our kind of unique uh, system of elections, the Electoral College and so on, Trump has a chance, good chance of winning next time, especially now that Biden seems to have some kind of, uh, what would you call them, uh, mental impediments or uh, cognitive impair uh, impairments. And so uh, it's not even clear to me that Biden's going to be a candidate, even though he says he's going to run. So this whole field might be wide open, but I'm very fearful that it's not going to be good for the trajectory of U.S.-China relations, because this bilateral relationship is the only one that people in Congress, Democrats and Republicans, can agree on, and that's demonizing China. Mm -hmm. I'm not looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Harvey Zoden, former vice president of ABC TV Network and senior fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. And thank you, Dr. Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Co 
cooperation. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. The Russian embassy in the U.S. says the White House has, in effect, confessed to committing war crimes by agreeing to send cluster munitions to Ukraine. The U.S. announced last Friday that it will provide cluster munitions to Ukraine for the first time. The transfer comes as Ukraine pushes ahead with a counteroffensive against Russian forces. Cluster munitions can leave unexploded bombs that pose risks to civilians for decades to come. Over 120 countries, including most NATO members, ha- have banned the use of the weapons. China has expressed concerns over the U.S. decision, stressing the need to strike a balance between humanitarian concerns and legitimate security needs. China strongly advocates for dialogue and negotiation as the sole viable path to resolving the crisis in Ukraine. For more, we are now joined on the line by Kamal Makili Aliyev, affiliated researcher at Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Sweden. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me.、Um, so, first of all, what are cluster munitions, and why are they more controversial than other bombs? Well, in short, the cluster munitions are usually the projectiles that can be deployed from the air or from the land、uh, that carry in themselves a small package or the cluster, have clustered、uh, explosive devices that will not explode on impact, but later when the clusters are out in the open. They、uh, start exploding、uh, in a series of small explosions、uh, that kill the enemy combatants,、um, covering、uh, large areas、uh, of on land or inside, for example, the hiding places or trenches. They're controversial because because they're seen as inherently indiscriminate, and that is, can lead to the violations of international humanitarian law. Yes. Yes. So, where have cluster bombs、uh, been used before, and are there any lessons that can be learned from past conflicts where、uh, these weapons were used? In a lot of conflicts in the Middle East, we've seen the use of cluster munitions.、Uh, we've also seen those used in the war in Korea,、uh, in war in Vietnam,、um, in the. Iraq,、uh, especially, there has been a lot of、uh, reports of use of the cluster munitions. The problem with them is, and the lessons learned are that they contaminate the territory. They not always、uh, explode. Not all the clusters explode、uh, on the impact or immediately after the impact, and、uh, they contaminate the territory and become sort of like mines,、um, which can harm the civilians in the long term. Yes, but the the Biden administration argues that the U.S. made cluster bombs are safer than the ones、uh, that Russia is already using in the conflict. How do you look at this? The argument there is that the U.S. produced munitions are generally have a higher quality. That would mean that the cluster bombs or the the clusters inside the bomb、uh, would would all explode,、uh, but there is no guarantee that it's actually accurate. So in percentage. Maybe the cluster munitions、uh, that the U.S. is is making、um, can be uh, of uh, higher quality, but that doesn't guarantee that all the clusters are going to be exploding during the conflict or even the lawful attack during the conflict and will not contaminate the、uh, earth or the territory that where it was used for the、uh, for the danger to come to the civilians later. Mm-hmm. Well, the U.S. says、uh, that Ukraine is running out of ammunition, and that is why、uh, they have made this decision. But are there no alternative options or strategies but to resort to the use of cluster munitions? And what impact do you think this will have on the ongoing crisis in Ukraine? Well, so what I've seen in the reports is that that's not the only reason for the decision. The other one is that、uh, because the warfare right now. Uh, is is、uh, trenched, so there are a lot of trenches. The cluster munitions are needed to、uh, eliminate the defending side, the, the Russian side, which is very, very much entrenched and、uh, bunkered. And those munitions are very effective in those kind of conditions. And the second part of it is, is that the Ukraine is running off a classical ammunition, but so does 
uh, its Western backers and the providers uh, of Western weaponry. So the the classical ammunition or or non-cluster ammunition is also running. This artillery ammunition is also running out, and so uh, by filling up the gap with the clusters is is, is also one of these reasons. Okay, but don't you think these are going to further escalate um, the conflicts between the two countries? I do not think that there is a space uh, for more escalation there apart from the nuclear escalation. We are already seeing the all-out warfare. Uh, what is, is actually the danger with, with this kind of munitions is, of course, the, the future threat to the civilians um, and the, the you know, controversy behind it of using a weapon that is already majorly um, understood as indiscriminate and that should be banned and there is a treaty to that effect. But moreover, there are arguments and very strong legal arguments that the, this kind of uh, munitions uh, can violate already existing obligations under international humanitarian law, namely the Article uh, 51 of the Additional Protocol 1, which both uh, Russia and Ukraine uh, have signed and are committed to. And that would mean that any attack that they use with such cluster munitions, Russia have used cluster munitions as well, uh, is going to be unlawful under international law. Okay, but in your view, how can countries strike a balance between a military necessity and minimizing harm to civilians? And this is the argument of a, of a human rights lawyer is just don't use those kind of weapons. Don't use the cluster munitions at all, because this is uh, beyond military necessity. Uh, this comes to the point where your, the effects of the attack are going to be long term and harmful to the civilians, regardless of where the, the munitions are being used and where they uh, can be and whether they can be controlled and the effects can be controlled. They can't. It's, it's basically um, a, a, an attack that will lead to the mining of uh, large parts uh, of the territory, which will then be uh, become uninhabitable by the civilians or pose the real danger to them. So there is no balance here between the military necessity and minimizing harm of the civilians. The civilians shouldn't be harmed per mm -hmm. se. Yeah, yeah. You know, California Congresswoman Barbara Lee expressed concerns about the decision, saying that it risks costing the U.S. its moral leadership in world affairs. H how do you look at this? I mean, does the U.S. have a moral leadership in world affairs? Well, at least in the understanding of the U.S. politicians, I guess it does have a moral leadership. Although, of course, this this is this is an area that I'm not an ex expert. If this question can be very controversial, um, in in a sense, we're not talking about the morality of the act right now. We're talking about the the legal side of it, more more or less, because if those those weapons are inherently indiscriminate, and you're supplying it to the countries that have you know uh, have legal obligations not to use them, regardless if it's Russia or Ukraine. Uh, then you are not only uh, risking any kind of uh, moral norms, you're risking violating the legal norms, which is, I think, is a bigger question, uh, regardless of what the U.S. politicians are thinking about. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the U.S. and Germany have resisted pressure from other allies to advance Ukraine's bid to join NATO. And, and Biden said he did not think Ukraine was ready. What do you make of this? I think there was a lot of discussion in, in the NATO as an alliance about the readiness of the alliance to accept the Ukraine's bid to join the alliance. And because of there is a lot of disagreement and tensions uh, between the major um, the major states that are part of the NATO as an alliance, um, U.S. is taking a stance that it, it right now the, the question needs to be deferred to the future and that it's right now too early to talk about that. There was also talk about the democratization uh, criteria for joining an alliance and general preparedness and rationality of including a country that is in, in the active conflict, albeit that Ukraine is in a self-defense mode, it still can have negative consequences for the alliance as a whole, and the alliance will try to protect itself. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Kamal Makiri Aliyev, affiliated researcher at Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Sweden. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. China's CPI was flat in June, with a decline of 0.2% from the previous month. Officials from the National Bureau of Statistics said 
pork prices fell more sharply from a year earlier, although adverse weather and a rise in vegetable prices offset the drag on food prices. Meanwhile, China's factory gate prices, or PPI, fell by 5.4 percent in June, a wider decline than the previous month. For more on the latest economic figures and what they mean for the economy, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Yao Shujie, Chengkong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. So, Professor Yao, China's consumer inflation or the CPI remained flat in June, while the PPI or the factory gate prices fell by 5.4 percent last month. So, how would you explain these figures, and what are some of the internal and external reasons for it? Um, I think these figures uh, give me some the so-called uh, cautious optimism in a sense. Uh, I, I'm. Uh, it is pleased to see that the CPI. Uh, is stable. It's not. It's not increasing, uh, as we see in the other countries like the United States, Europe, and the United Kingdom, where the high, high or hyperinflation has, uh, you know, uh, damaged the interest of consumers. But in China, I think consumers enjoy the set, the steady prices, which is good to to a certain extent. On the other hand. We can see that the PPI is still, uh, you know, declining quite significantly at 5.4%, and the deficit, sorry, the declining is actually widening uh, compared to the same period last year and the previous month. So this means that the the producers are under uh, significant pressure uh, to to increase their profit margin. It means that a lot of consumers, the producers, have to sacrifice their profit margin for a certain level of sales. So uh, this situation could be quite challenging for the production sector, uh, particularly the small and medium-sized enterprises. On the other hand, if we look at uh, the structure of the PPI, uh, most of the increase is happening in the, in the oil and natural gas and raw material sectors. Uh, much of it actually comes from the broad. This means that the, the decrease on the PPI, uh, to some extent, is imported from other countries uh, rather than from the domestic economy. On the domestic uh, side, I think the cons- uh, you know the consumption goods sectors, uh, the prices are stable and to some extent increased uh, you know slightly, which is good. It means that in this sector, uh, producers' pressure is relatively low. Mm-hmm. So that sends some positive signal for the economy and the cover in the rest of the year. Mm. So, what are the main driving forces? Do you think for China's high-end manufacturing sectors like NEV and solar industry? And with the U.S. and EU planning to add more subsidies for the NEV sector, will China maintain its position? The I think China have um, two particular advantage in terms of the high-end manufacturer. Uh, one is technological progress. The other is uh, human capital accumulations. Uh, technological progress, China has been doing fairly well over the last few decades. Initially, we started from a relatively low level of technology and it gradually escalating into the uh, medium and higher level of technology. So China is directly competing with the most advanced economy, uh, most advanced manufacturing in the world. Um, and also, China's the second advantage is the accumulation of human capital. Uh, Chinese Chinese labor force are uh, much more educated than before, and the capability to innovate and making uh, significant technological uh, adoption and also progress have been increased uh, significantly. Particularly mm. in the high-end manufacturing, the NEB and also battery. Uh, those are the China become the front runner, although we are facing with fierce competition uh, from the United States, Japan, and Western Europe. But I believe China, due to the significant market size and also the capability in terms of technology and human capital, China is and will continue to be mm-hmm. a leading uh, runner in terms of high-end manufacturer. And what's your expectations for China's consumption, exports, and investment in the second half of this year? And what can be done to boost the confidence for consumption? 
Well, um, China is facing a number of challenges here in order to maintain uh, relatively high economic growth as set by the state. And consumption, I think uh, the consumption, uh, particularly the service sector, which is uh, consumption-driven, uh, is growing steadily, although it is um, at a relatively uh, not too high level, which is uh, a, a little bit uh, lack of power. Uh, but uh, it will continue to be uh, stable in the second half of the year, for sure. The other things is the, the, the production investment, which uh, still need to be stimulated by government policy, uh, both the central and the regional level. And in uh, you know investment, I think it depends on which sector we are talking about. The, the state sector is doing pretty well, but the private sector is, is doing relatively uh, not so well due to the, the, the long-term uh, effect of the COVID-19 in the previous year. The private sector is suffering, was suffering quite significantly, but it's this recovery uh, steadily in the first half of the year, and I would believe they will continue to recover in the second half of the year. The government at both levels, central and, and local levels, they need to do is they have, they have to uh, face directly to these challenges and make sure uh, the investment, uh, consumption, uh, they have to be uh, uh, boosted by all kinds of policy efforts. And China set this year's GDP target of around 5%. So from your perspective, what are the most important parts to reach that target? And where should be the focus? Well, um, we, we need to focus on uh, different dimensions. The Chinese economy is normally divided into the three key sectors. Agriculture, which is the first sector. Manufacturing is the second. And also the services, which is mainly driven by consumption. Now, the service sector is accounting an uh, increasing larger proportion of the country's GDP. So this sector turned out to be the most important contributor for boosting economic growth. Uh, it is related to uh, people's income, uh, related to the people's willingness to, to consume, and also uh, job employment and security uh, national uh, social services and so on. So the, there will be a, a, a sequence of policy to boost it, uh, this uh, sector. Now manufacturing. Manufacturing in China is not uh, largely driven by the high-end manufacturing, but uh, the labor-intensive industry is also a, a bulk of the manufacturing sector. So the, the government at all levels, they have to make sure uh, at least in the short term, all sectors have to be uh, sustained and have to be stimulated to make sure that the manufacturing sector will maintain a certain level of, of growth. Mm. In agriculture, I think it will be uh, also another key area for not only for national security, but also for uh, food security as well. And uh, boosting the uh, low population income level is also very useful for agricultural development. It would be a continuation of the effort of the anti-poverty campaign in the past, and this uh, the so-called rural revitalization uh, have a significant scope for expansion mm. related to the first sector. So it is a very comprehensive uh, system that China is, is is going to maintain this uh, relatively high level of growth at five percent or even more. That's Dr. Yao Shujie, Chengkong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yang. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Bangladesh's Foreign Minister A.K. Abdul Momin says his country follows a balanced and independent foreign policy and is not subservient to any country. The foreign minister called China a development partner but ruled out any possibility that Bangladesh could be exposed to a Chinese debt trap. For more, we are now joined on the line by Rongying, vice president and senior research fellow at China Institute of International Studies. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
Um, so the foreign minister says Bangladesh follows a balanced and independent foreign policy and is not subservient to any country. How would you describe、uh, Bangladesh's approach to foreign policy, and what do you think are the key factors that shape its decision-making process? Well, it is true. I think Bangladesh, as the、uh, one of the major、uh, South Asian countries, has always、uh, pursued、uh, independent, non-aligned. Uh, foreign policy ever since it achieved independence in 1971, and with uh, uh, pragmatism and cautionism in pursuing foreign policy, it also very much focused on maintaining good relations with all the major countries in the world, and with special focus on two countries.、Uh, one, of course, in the region that is India, because it shares. Ninety-four percent of its boundaries with India, which means that its development and security is very much dependent on a good terms, good relations with India, and also because Bangladesh is a Muslim country, so it's all very much focused on、uh, developing relations uh, with uh, Islamic countries, and more importantly, because of、uh, Bangladesh traditional. Uh, role in promoting developing countries. It is very much developing interest of development is very much focused on multilateral um, uh, di- diplomacy. Uh, it, it contributes a lot, I think, greatly in terms of peacekeeping and UN, and also promoting、uh, regional、uh, integration, regional economic、uh, cooperation in South Asia. So it's fair to say, I think.、Uh, Uh, Bangladesh will always play a、uh, followed、uh, balanced and independent foreign policy,、uh, focusing on achieving a favorable terms, favorable environment, so that it would focus on this peace and the development. Mm-hmm. Well, Momin said that、uh, Bangladesh is often associated with rushing towards China, but he said the country is not heading towards anyone in particular.、Uh, but h- how would you evaluate the nature of Bangladesh's relationship with China? Well, China's relationship, China and Bangladesh relationship, has always been very good,、uh, based on a very solid and strong foundation, political trust, economic cooperation, and also people-to-people、uh, interaction.、Uh, I think、uh, we so far uh, the uh, Bangladesh, uh, China and Bangladesh is certainly the largest trading partner. And、uh, it is also very much, I think,、uh, development partners.、Uh, I mean, for Bangladesh, as jo-、uh, particularly when after join the、uh, become part of the、uh, BR Belt and Road Initiative in 2016. And more importantly, I think Ch- politically, China and Bangladesh has always been very much supporting each other on the question、uh, touched upon core interests. Uh, economically, as I said, that China and Bangladesh being developing countries, that helping each other, and even in、uh, I think the defense sector, China and Bangladesh is also doing very well in terms of、uh, de- defense cooperation. So it's fair to say、uh, the relationship is very good, very close,、uh, based on mutual respect and mutual benefit. But it is also true, I think, being an independent、uh, sovereign state. Bangladesh always try to find a, a balance. More importantly, I think try to ensure that relationship with any countries, I mean, including China,、uh, that would serve its best interest. It's interest for development.、Mm-hmm. Well, Momin has、uh, rejected the possibility of Bangladesh falling into a so-called Chinese debt trap. What is your perspective on this issue, and how do you assess、uh, the country's debt management practices and its ability to mitigate potential risks associated with foreign loans? Well, the so-called debt uh, trap uh, uh, diplomacy. As Minister Momen said, it's a wrong perception. It's actually it's a kind of a、uh, effort、uh, by some countries, some、uh, to slander, to tarn, to 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 tarnish、uh, China's, to undermine China's efforts as a, a, a provider for inter or a, a contributor for international cooperation. And I think 
Uh, if you look at the, the question of China's assistance or support in towards the developing country in terms of the uh, by in, uh, in the area of foreign, uh, I mean, uh, loans, grants, and others, uh, one would have a general picture that first and foremost, China has in the past decades, particularly the launching of the BRI, has been uh, uh, one of the major providers of that. But having said that, if you look at the differences and look at the contributions uh, of these loans and support in terms of improvement infrastructure, one would notice that without China's assistance and loans, as these countries have over the past decades and decades ago, would not be able to receive anything because in terms of finance, in terms of the capability, they are not able to attract uh, any uh, or big uh, uh, financial uh, assistance or, or not able to find the problem of financing in terms of infrastructure development. The question of Bangladesh is a, is a telling example. I think Minister Maimon made it very clear in terms of its foreign loan uh, profile, first and, uh, uh, and foremost, it's not very high. You're talking about 13 percent something of its overall GDP. And out of which, I think Minister Maimon said, 61% was provided by international agencies, World Bank, IMF, and ADB, and others. And for for single country, Japan is the highest single country uh, loan provider. China has taken up a very small number of that, mm. talking about less than 1% of the a GDP total. And more importantly, I think China's loans uh, and support has helped Bangladesh and a lot in terms of infrastructure improvement, the bridge, road, and the power plants and so on, so which helps Bangladesh to become the, uh, I think, the fastest growing economy in the region and even in the world in the past mm-hmm. case. Yeah, thank you, Rongying, Vice President and Senior Research Fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.